Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Berean Bible Church podcast. This is the fifth message in our Seven Seas of History series, and this message came from our Green Campus and our teaching pastor, Justin Bluer. It's the fifth milestone in the story that God is writing, and it's all about Jesus. Good morning, everyone. Boy, it's good to see you. Welcome to all of our other campuses. Join us by simulcast and online. Who enjoyed the recent snowstorm? <laughs> so if you hate snow, the good news is spring's coming. For the rest of us, it looks like our prayers worked. But don't tell the people around you that we were praying for this stuff, this snow. Um, before we get into our message today, I'd like to pause and just take a moment to pray. Uh, specifically for our friends over in Ukraine this morning and all that they're facing. You know, it was only 250 years ago that a weak people fought off an invading superpower and gained their independence. And uh, I think the world has watched at the bravery of the Ukrainian people standing strong in the face of a certain defeat. And yet they're standing boldly trying to fight for their freedom. And I think they deserve our prayers this morning. So let's bow in prayer. Father God, our hearts break as we look at the news, as we see these precious Ukrainian people with an inferior military, an inferior uh, artillery, inferior in every way. And yet they are standing so brave for their freedom, for their homeland, for their nation. And so we cry out for them. We, we pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness they need. We pray especially for our, our Christian brothers and sisters over there who need incredible wisdom to know how to handle the violence that's raging around them. God, we pray the impossible prayer this morning that you would change the heart of President Putin. God, you have brought low dictators before, and we pray that you would do so again. God, it's frustrating to see evil win. It's frustrating to see evil progress, but we know that someday you will take your rightful throne. And we look forward to that day. So God, thank you. We, we also just want to pray for those in Russia who are grieved by what they see. God, would you give them wisdom to know how to respond. Many young Russian troops have no idea why they're in Ukraine, have no idea why they're fighting their brothers. God, would you give them a change of heart? Would they do the right thing? We pray this, trusting that somehow in all this, you are working out a plan that's bigger and better than we can even begin to imagine. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's funny because no matter how you slice it, Putin and his thirst for power, it kind of seems like history all over again. Haven't we been here before? We've seen this movie. We kind of know how it plays out. And you have to wonder, and I've, and I've heard multiple times on the news this past week, it feels like we're back in the 19th and 20th century all over again. Haven't we progressed beyond this? Why do these types of things keep happening? It's the 21st century. Well, 
God actually tells us why these things keep happening. He says this in the book of James. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You know, pride and power and greed and violence, it's like this loop, and history is stuck in that loop like a broken record. What's interesting, those of you who are students of history realize that during the Enlightenment era, right, the 1800s, the 1700s, our world was convinced that humans could solve the problems of our world through education. And then what happened in the early 1900s? Highly educated people started killing each other for reasons they didn't understand, and it was called World War I. And suddenly, people started scratching their heads saying, wait a minute. Maybe we can't solve the problems of our world through education, but I bet we can solve it through technology. And so you see this rise and focus on technology and this, this, this optimism of, okay, maybe it's not education, maybe it's technology that will solve the problems of the world. And then what happened in the 40s? World War II happened, right? And World War II brought with it Warfare, where the technology far outpaced the strategies of war. And young men were mowed down in battlefields that looked more like scenes out of hell. And our technology even allowed us to use weapons that turned cities into rubble with one single weapon. And the optimism of the Enlightenment and the optimism of the technology age gave way to just this new increasing reality that education and technology weren't going to solve the problems of the world. And a pessimism kind of started to fall across the world. And it was this idea that maybe the problem isn't really out there. Maybe we found the problem and it's us. And this new reality is a reality that we're living with today. And there's been a shift in the last few generations post-World War II with this idea that maybe, maybe modernism isn't the solution and progress isn't going to really make us progress. Maybe, in fact, who really cares? And we've gone from modernism, some of you know what we're in now, we're now in a postmodern world, and the postmodern world ultimately says, who cares? Who cares? Your truth is whatever's right for you. You do what feels right to you. And by and large, people have kind of walked away from the optimism of the last 300 years. What's interesting is the natural result of that is suicide, which has skyrocketed in every age group. And now you have countries all across the world right now that are looking to legalize suicide and call it euthanasia because it sounds better. And everyone's just doing what feels right to them. And the mood of the day, instead of the optimism of the enlightenment and the excitement of the technology age, the mood of the day is more of anxiety, discouragement, depression, chaos, and darkness. And you have to ask the question, how in the world did we get here? 
And how do we get out? Well, we really can't solve the problem until we put our finger really firm on the, on the issue, the root issue. So before today, we look at the solution, and I've got good news. There is a solution. We've got to put our finger on the problem. And to do that, we're in a series called The Human Story, The Seven Seas of History. We're tracing what went wrong, because all of us have instinctively in our, in, our, in, our, in our guts this idea that this has gone wrong. This has gone off the tracks. The world's not supposed to be like this. So I want to retrace our steps from the past few weeks to get us to today's sea, because we've had four different seas we've looked at. And to do that, uh, I actually could use a volunteer. So I could use a young person who's young, 12 or under, Jonathan, you're close, uh, let's say 12 or under. Do I have a 12 or under young person who's willing to help me? I got you, sir, in the back. Come on up. Oh, that's okay. You can both, you can both come on up. All right, you're going to help me here, okay? Why don't you guys tell everybody your... Come, come right on over here. I want everyone to see you. All right, tell everybody your name, sir. Grayson and Scott. And Scott. All right, Grayson and Scott, you're going to hold on to this cube for me, and this cube has all seven seas of history in the cube. The power of the cube. Now, here's what's cool. You're going to hold it right here because then the front is what C. Take a look, Grayson. Tell me what that says. Creation. Okay, so the first C of history that we looked at at the start of the series is creation. And it's this idea that God created things how? How did God create things? What, what condition did he make everything? Was it okay? Was it a mess? Or was it perfect? <laughs> it was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah, yeah, it was perfect. It was perfect. It was so good, in fact, that it only took God six days, and on the seventh day, God just rested. There was no more to do. It was so good. He had actually, the day before, officiated at the first wedding, and their marriage was so good that he rested. They didn't even need any help. You imagine? And so the world was good. Humans were in harmony with each other and the world. Marriage was awesome. Family was created. God loved everything he had made. It was exactly the way he intended. But the story didn't end there, did it? Okay, this is where it gets fun, Grayson. Flip this open to go to the next C. What's that say? The corruption. Corruption. Because one day in that perfect world, humans decided to defy God. And there was this rebellion that happened. And they said, this isn't good enough for us. We want to be more like God. And they defied God. And the moment they defied God, what happened to the perfect creation, Grayson? <laughs> Corruption, right? Everything broke. Everything got ruined. And all of a sudden, what God had made, the perfection he had designed, was ruined. And now the disease and suffering and death became part of our story. It became normal. And we live with that to this day. And God's heart was broken. This is not what God wanted. It is not what he intended. And the story plummets downhill. 
In fact, it goes downhill so much that as humans multiplied and started to spread around the world, what also multiplied was that sin. It was that rebellion. It was the violence and the immorality. And people just kept doing what they wanted to do. And finally, here's what gets fun. Go to the next one. What's that one say? It's a big word. I know, it's a huge word. Catastrophe. After corruption came catastrophe. And that's where God said, I am going to bleach the world. I'm going to flood it, and I'm going to start over. And right before he did, he stopped and he said, wait a minute, I'm going to rescue one man and his family. And they built a huge ship, and they were rescued through that global catastrophe. Now, seems like that should have worked, but it didn't, because who did God allow to make it through? Humans. And so because of that, we get to our next C, and this is the one we looked at last week, and it's what? You guys read that word? Confusion. Confusion. You nailed it. There's no confusion about confusion. Good job. So listen, with confusion, here's what happened. is God looked at people, and he had told them, I want you to multiply. I want you to spread out. I want you to fill the earth. And you know what they did? They didn't. They stayed in one city. They were building a skyscraper. It was this trophy of their greatness. And God said, oh, no, you don't. You keep defying me. I've bleached the earth. I'm going to get creative. This time, I'm just going to confuse your languages. They spoke one language. It was probably English. (laughs) He confused their language. All of a sudden, they couldn't understand each other, and they split off in groups that understood each other, and they then were forced to spread out around the world. And that's kind of where the story left off last week, is we've got creation kind of very quickly corrupted, you've got catastrophe, and you've got confusion. That's a pretty depressing story. But there's another C coming. So will you give these guys a big hand? Thank you, guys. You are very good helpers. Here's the next C. I want you to go with me because the day of corruption, the day the first bad C hit, there was a promise about a future crossroads where it would get so bad and finally there'd be a solution. I want you to look with me at Genesis 3 in your Bibles. Uh, If you want to tap there in a Bible app, if you want to turn there in the chair Bible, it's page 4. Genesis chapter 3. This is where it gets pretty fascinating. Genesis 3, right near the beginning, we're going to see something. Because, see, when you heard that story just now, when, when you heard about the corruption, the catastrophe, the confusion, the tendency is to think of this mess that we live with in human terms. But if you think of it in purely human terms, that humans just keep messing things up, what you're going to miss is a key player, and you're going to miss the backstory of the storyline, which is crucial to understand the bigger arc of history. So check this out, Genesis 3, you've got God and you've got humans, but verse 1 says the, the serpent... All of a sudden on the scene, you've got this thing called a serpent. He's the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say? And he tempts her. She, as you know, gave in to that temptation. We talked about that in corruption. But what happened after that we didn't look at closely, and I want us to today, is what God then said 
in that day of corruption because he drops for us a hint that will become a hope for people for thousands of years. Check this out. Verse thir- uh, go to verse 12. He confronted the people and, and said, you know, how did this happen? And the man said, well, it was obviously the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. It wasn't my fault, it's hers. You're the one who gave her to me. You're the one who made us get married. Aren't you so glad we don't blame each other anymore? Verse 13, then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And she, of course, did the same thing the guy did. Well, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. They just keep pointing fingers. And so God's like, no, don't worry. I'll curse all of you. Like, all of you have defied me. All of you have rebelled. So I'm going to curse all of you. And so then God, verse 14, said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Here's the irony. You know the number one most feared creature in the world universally by people? <laughs> that didn't take many guesses, did it? Snakes. And so there's just kind of this idea, like, we get it. We get that this snake would be hated and feared, and it would be crawling on its belly. Before this, I don't know, did it, did it hover? Did it fly? Did it walk? No idea. It doesn't matter. It crawls now on its belly. Like, it, it slithers across the ground. And so you kind of get this idea of why the serpent is so, why the snakes are so feared. But there's more to the story. There's obviously more than just maybe this being a snake because in verse 15, you get a picture or a window into something bigger going on. It says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman. And you think, okay, that's obvious. There's hostility between most snakes and most people. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And, and if you begin to think through this a little more, you realize, okay, obviously there's something more going on. In verse 14, God is cursing an animal. And in verse 15, he's cursing something that was inside of that animal, the thing that was talking in the animal. He seems to be cursing a being that energized a voice from within this animal. And so suddenly you realize that there is this cosmic battle going on between this serpent, whatever he is, and he promises that this will be an ongoing hostility between the serpent, not as much the snake anymore, but the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And this would be this ongoing fight. The fight isn't just with Eve, it's much bigger than that. The fight isn't just with the snake, it's much bigger than that. There is going to be a human fight against an unseen serpent and all that are the spawn of that unseen serpent will be hostile against all those who are the offspring of the woman. And it's, it's kind of this general conflict. But if you read it close, you see that there's a little strange thing at the end of that curse. You will, uh, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And all of a sudden, instead of talking about offspring plural, all of a sudden it goes down to the singular, and it says he. At some point in the future would come an offspring of the woman. And that offspring of the woman would be male and would be struck by the serpent. What do, ser- what do snakes like to do? They like to nip at heels. And so this serpent will bite the heel 
philosophically, right? It's an illustration of this offspring. But what will that offspring do then to the serpent? He will take that heel and strike his head. And so right here, the day of corruption, God gives this little nugget of hope, this little glimmer of hope that someday from the woman would come someone who wouldn't just do battle with the serpent, but would be able to actually stomp the head of the serpent. And this became a hope that people held on to. They don't understand this. It doesn't really make sense. We, we struggle even to understand it, the way that God said it. But he's given them a little hope. Hey, someday, there won't just be any normal offspring. It will be an offspring of the woman, and he will have the power to actually strike back and deliver a blow to the head of this serpent. Now, if you're a logical person, you're probably asking some questions that are very obvious at this point. Well, if it's an offspring of humans, well, isn't that human going to be corrupted? Well, every person who's born of a man and a woman through history has received the seed of sin in their heart from conception. And we prove it very quickly after birth when we lie and take things that aren't ours without anyone ever teaching us how to do it. We're kind of corrupted, very young. And I know when they're born, they look perfect. And then within a year, you say, what happened to my little angel? And there becomes this battle between something inside of this little angel and something that you're like, ah, they're cute, but there's something wrong. There's something broken inside of my little angel. But what if someone came not from the seed of a man, but was only born of a woman? And that became the promise of the prophet. Someday, there would be someone who was not born through the line of a man, but would be born only of a woman. Here's exactly what one prophet said, Isaiah. The Lord himself will give you the sign. You want a sign that one day someone's going to come and crush the head of the snake? Here it is. Look, the virgin will conceive. Yeah, that'd be a pretty big sign. That can't happen, but it'll happen. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God's coming to earth. God's going to go toe-to-toe with the serpent. And you want a sign for when it happens? It's when a virgin gets pregnant. There's your sign. And when that happens, all the confusion, all the catastrophe, all the corruption, someday there's going to be that one who's born. And the prophets talked about him. I'll show you a few prophecies that were kind of interesting because for for centuries people looked at these prophecies and got excited the people who walk in darkness will see a great light for those who live in a land of deep darkness a light will shine in other words it's bad and it's going to get worse but in that darkness one day someone's going to turn on a light someday a light is going to finally flick on look at what this prophet says micah but you O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. And yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Yeah, I know when they got this prophecy, they scratched their heads. What? To a little town, a little out-of-the-way town, village, someone's going to be born who's a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past? What? 
Someone's going to be born who's ancient. Someone's going to be born who's a ruler. Again, all of this is that little light in the darkness that people held on to. They didn't fully understand this, but they just thought, wow, someday something cool is going to go down. And it's going to go down in an out-of-the-way place. But that person, that kid, that guy is going to be a ruler whose origins are from the distant past. I don't really get it, but it's going to be cool. And then here's what another prophet said this, this person would say. Well, when he comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind and he's going to unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. And it's this idea that in the midst of all this corruption will come one who will begin to reverse the curse. And all of these physical maladies and all of this darkness and all of this discouragement, the light's going to enter and going to start to reverse. Look at what the prophet says here. He says that that one is going to say, the Lord's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time, read this with me, the time of the Lord's favor has come. In the midst of the darkness, the chaos, the confusion, and the corruption, God would pour out his favor. A light would come into the darkness. So everybody's living through the period of confusion. They're living for hundreds of years, looking forward to when that deliverer would come. That rescuer would come. Someone who would finally be born of a virgin. Don't know how that's going to work. And make an entrance into the world to bring light. Now here's the irony of all this. When that moment came, his entrance was pretty incognito. He came to a faraway village to be born. And he wasn't born to royalty. He was born to a young, poor couple. He was born not in a palace, but in an animal cave. And he lived in obscurity in a blue-collar family in a far-flung rural town for almost his entire life. He wasn't dining and whining with the elite ruling nobles. But one day, he stepped out from obscurity and he stepped onto the world stage. He was not recognized. But you know who recognized him instantly? This gets a little crazy. People in that day dealt with a lot of demonic oppression. Right? Call them demon-possessed, whatever. And the spirits would talk through with different voices through the mouths of those people. And instantly, when they met this guy, they would begin yelling out, we know who you are! And this guy would reply, don't you dare say. Don't you say who I am. Shut up. And you see him begin to go toe-to-toe to toe with this cosmic unseen realm that all gets worked up. He's here. He's here. And they all start screaming. He's like, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't you say who I am. Don't you say who I am. They knew who he was. 
And he began to just go town to town, village to village, and he just began to teach. And people came from miles around to hear his teaching because no one taught like him. And then he started doing things as he was teaching. He started doing these healings. And he started doing these miracles. And boy, people really came for that because no one had ever seen anything like this. And the more he does it, it doesn't take long before these massive crowds of people follow him everywhere he goes. And he has this inner circle of 12 students. And one day he turns to that inner circle of 12 students and he asks them a very important question. And this is where it gets cool. Turn with me. I don't want you to miss this. Matthew 16. I want you to see this for yourself. Maybe this is a passage you've read before, you've seen before, but have you understood the significance of this passage? This is cool. Matthew 16. Let's go to verse 13 to see what happens when he turns to his inner circle and asks them a question. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, his his inner 12, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. They're like, the rumor mill is hot right now. Everybody's taking a guess at which prophet you are. People know that you're different. People know that you're a superhero. They just don't know which one you are. You know, are you Iron Man? Are you the Hulk? Are you, right? they, they don't know which one you are. They just know you're something special. They've never heard what you've, stuff you're saying. They've never seen the stuff that you're doing. And then Jesus directly looked at these guys and he asked them this, but who do you say I am? Who do you guys think I am? Guess who answers right away? Simon Peter. I love this guy. As a very young boy, his mama dressed him in peppermint socks because he was always putting his foot in his mouth. Right? He was the kid who would always speak without thinking. He would act without thinking. He was always getting in trouble. But on this day, he blurts out an answer that wasn't impulsive, it wasn't spontaneous. He blurts out an answer that he had obviously thought through. He had thought a lot about it. And here's his answer. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. The actual word he used was this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Simon Peter's real name was what? The name his parents gave him was Simon. And Jesus nicknamed him. Jesus was fun. Jesus was a neat person. He would give people nicknames based on their different character qualities. For for Simon, he said, I'm going to name you Peter. I'm going to nickname you Peter. Peter meant little rock. Because Peter was anything but a rock. I mean, the guy was all over the place. Jesus was like, I'm going to call you little rock. I'm sure everyone's rolling their eyes. Peter's no rock. I'll call you little rock. But Peter here says something that's so profound when he says, you are the Christ. Some of your translations say Messiah, but if you look at the asterisk, you'll see that the asterisk is actually saying that he said the word Christ. 
And you might hear that word and think, okay, what's so significant about the word Christ? Isn't Jesus Christ the name of this guy that we're looking at? No, that's not his name. Jesus was his name. You say, but I thought for sure Jesus Christ, I mean, isn't that what people say when they're worshiping Jesus Christ or don't they say it when they're cursing Jesus Christ? That's not a name. Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. And the title Christ means the anointed one. To put it in modern English, it means the one. And so when Peter turns to Jesus, when he says, who do you say I am? And Peter's like, you're the one. You're the one. You're the one all the prophets have been talking about. You're the one that was spoken of back in the garden that day. The one who's going to go toe-to-toe with the serpent. You're the one that's going to crush his head, aren't you? You're the one. You're the one who's going to do war against the serpent finally. And Jesus' response, look at this. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own, did you? God told you this. You did not learn this from any human being. You couldn't have. For you to know and believe that I'm the one, someone opened your eyes. And now look at what Jesus says. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. There's something crazy cool going on right here. Jesus looks at Peter and he's like, hey little rock, upon this rock I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build a gathering, a movement of people. Some people misread that and they think that Jesus was looking at Peter and like, on you I'm going to build it. Do you really think Jesus would build something big on a little rock? Jesus says, Peter, little rock, on this confession that you've just made, you've just looked at me and said, you're the one. On that rock, I will build a movement of people. I will build a movement of people who believe that I'm the one. And that movement of people will go global and the forces of hell will not prevail against it. I'll tell you what, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. There is this movement of people that Jesus is going to gather whose lives are built on one fundamental truth, and it's that Jesus is the one. He's it. He's the one we've all been waiting through from the arc of history after corruption, catastrophe, and confusion. Everyone's waiting for the one. And Peter's like, you're it. And Jesus is like, you didn't figure that out on your own, buddy. But everyone else in history who says that, I'm going to make them part of a global movement and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. The kingdom of darkness, the serpent and his minions will have no power over those who build their life on that rock. And that, my friends, is the fifth sea of history. Into the chaos and confusion and catastrophe came Christ, the one. The one that all the prophets had spoken of, the one that everyone had hoped for. And he steps on the scene 
and a few people get it. And Jesus said, you want to know why I came? You want to know why I came? You want to know why I came? Here's why. Look at this. The thief's purpose, the serpent's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Who's the thief? The serpent. He's been around crawling through the, <laughs> even Eden. He despises God. He's jealous of God. He wants to destroy everything that God's made. Do you know where the serpent's home is? It's earth. He's called the prince and the power of the air. He has tremendous ability to sow division and chaos and destruction around the world. Watch the news for 60 seconds and you'll see the serpent busy at work. But the Christ came. And my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I'm going to begin reversing the curse. And everywhere Christ went, he couldn't help himself the lame could walk, the mute could talk, the deaf could hear, the blind could see, the dead could get out of their caskets. Everywhere he went, people wanted to just touch him because he's the one who reverses the curse. He's the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And not only would he give back a life that's not robbed of its purpose, he also said this, I give them eternal life. In other words, death will take you, death will take everyone, but on the other side, I offer life in a new corruption-free, pain-free, suffering-free, disease-free, death-free environment. I will recreate Eden, and I will give it back to those who build their life on this rock. No one can snatch them away from me. You build your life on the rock of Jesus being the Christ, you are secure, my friend. <laughs> Jesus said this. This is how God loved the world. God looked at the chaos of the world, and here's what he decided to do. He decided to give his one and only son. You imagine that? Who here would be willing to send your son right now to Ukraine? And God looked at the chaos. God looked at the impossible odds, the risk, and said, I'll take the risk. I'll take it. I'll go right to the heart of the disease. And I'll send my son, and he will die for you. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus would be the one who would come down to our wars to fight the war for us and win a victory we could never win. Jesus risked it all for you. He took all of the risk. It was the greatest gamble in history. And he paid for it with his life. And now our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to spread this good news to the rest of the world that is desperate for the one, even if they don't know it. Jesus came to our mess to be the lifesaver that we needed. And now it's our job to share the one with the world. Why take the risk of sharing Jesus? 
with coworkers and friends and family that might mock you or laugh at you. Your reputation's on the line. Why do it? Because Jesus is too good to keep to yourself. Why take the risk of being a church that keeps launching other campuses, reaching new communities? Because Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. And if it costs us everything in the world, let's pay it anyway. Because Jesus is the hope that technology can't give us. Jesus is the hope that education can't give us. Our world is looking for hope and meaning and significance in all the wrong places. Money and fame and power, pleasure and popularity, food and drugs and alcohol, all around us people are looking for hope and they can't find it because they must go to the one. And only when they find the one can they cling to a rock that will hold them through any storm. And on this belief that Jesus is the one, the Christ, he said, I will build a movement that the gates of hell can't stop. The irony of all this is our entire calendar and dating system points to this sea of history. It is 2022 years from what? The birth of the one. We count from it. We look back to it. All of history points to the coming of the one who is the rock of salvation to any who believe, even those of us who need to wear peppermint socks. As you leave this morning at the exits, you're going to find a bowl at all of our campuses with lifesavers. I want you to take one with you as you go, and if you're like me and you're just going to pop this in your mouth and eat it, go ahead and do that. But as you taste that delicious flavor, let it be a reminder to you of the goodness and flavor Jesus brought into our world. He came to the darkness, he brought light. He came to chaos and he brought calm. He came to blandness and he brought flavor. And, and, and maybe for you, you're not going to eat it. You're just going to keep it, and you're, it's going to be this visible reminder to you that you have a lifesaver. He's the one. He's the one who reverses the curse. He's the one that you can build your life on. And maybe you're just going to use it as a visible reminder and remind yourself that you shouldn't hoard it. You should be sharing it. I should be sharing it with the people around me. Because only those that God opens their eyes will believe. But Jesus said, how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear if we don't tell them? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you believe that, you have built your life on the rock. And the gates of hell cannot ever prevail against you. And that, my friend, is really good news. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, God, I am blown away that to our chaos and to our mess, you would send your only son. That's the last thing I would have done. Thank you for sending him to us. We desperately needed him. God, I love that day when Peter looked at you and just confidently pointed you out and said, you're it. You're the one. You're the anointed one of God.
You're the deliverer, the rescuer that we prayed for and waited for. God, you're just, your plan is so good. The demons knew it before people knew it. They knew who you were. God, thank you for the day when you opened my eyes and I could believe. Thank you that you've given me the honor and the privilege to build my life on a rock that isn't shaken by the storm. I don't deserve to be part of this movement of people. But boy, I'm grateful to be part. God, when we look around us at the world, we still see so much darkness. God, help us to be people of the light, carriers of the great truth, and help us to point the people around us to the Christ, the one. The one with the power to change everything. The one with the power to reverse the curse. God, I pray today to the person who has not yet had that Peter moment, who has not yet had the moment where they've looked at you and said, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the one. God, I pray that today you give them the faith to believe. I pray that today, just in their heart, they can say, God, I believe in your son. I believe he's the one. And that you would adopt them into your family, forgive them of all their sin, and cleanse them and make them new. And God, we as a church family, we welcome them in to the greatest movement in the history of the world, the movement with the most hope and the most power because we believe in the one with the power to change everything. God, I pray that you will forgive me for my fear of speaking up bolder. Forgive me for being more worried about my reputation than the eternal destiny of the souls of the people around me. Untie my tongue. Give me passion for you. May no one around me walk in ignorance of the light. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness to share the greatest message of the world with the people of the world. Because in the darkness, a light has shined. In the desert, a stream is flowing. And his name is Jesus. And he is the Christ. He is the one. Father, I pray that this week as we go out of here, as we have these little lifesavers in our pocket, that they'll just be this reminder to us that hope has come, that we can build our life on a rock that is big. We are small stones, like Peter. But your son, Jesus Christ, is our cornerstone. And on him, we build our hope and our future. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring enough about us to rescue us while we were lost and without hope. You reached into our darkness. You sent your son. Boy, am I grateful. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the one we've waited for. And God's people said, amen.